what I'm hoping to do this morning is, is to give a key to the understanding of the rest of 1 Corinthians. If you were with us last uh, week, we were looking at the first 11 verses of uh, chapter 15. And um, basically, what I want to do is just cover the rest of the um, uh, chapter, but just give, a, as I say, a key to understanding it. it it's, um, there's an awful lot here, obviously. It would take far longer than uh, even my longest sermon to, uh, to cover the whole of this chapter. But uh, I hope we'll be able to uh, see it in some um, greater clarity here um, this morning. Um, if there are far too few sermons on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think there are, then sermons on the resurrection of the bodies of believers, they're uh, very thin on the ground. Um, indeed, and as a result of that, I think partly because of our reluctance to preach much on this subject, um, it's not a personal thing, I think it's part of our evangelical culture, we don't really preach as much as we should on last things in general. But as a result of not really preaching on the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, uh, I think Christians have all sorts of strange beliefs about these things. Uh, when you discuss last things, eschatology, that's what last things are about what's the future involves for Christians. And um, you will find that people who are normally quite sound and sensible in all the things they generally believe about Christian doctrine, they suddenly uh, are getting all sorts of wild ideas and imagining all sorts of things. And uh, their beliefs are, are hazy uh, and uh, perhaps even hairy. Um, I think the whole area of um, last things, and particularly when we come to think about our future and what it's going to be like, um, quite frankly, uh, it's fertile ground uh, for what I call evangelical myths. There are all sorts of things passed on by hearsay almost that don't come from the scripture, which uh, we can believe as though they are in the Bible itself. Um, I want to begin um, by looking at just two verses, which really are uh, where we're, we're, we're starting here um, this morning. Uh, verse 35 and 36 of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. And um, that's my starting point, which is Paul's response to these two questions. He says, how foolish. Um, and so, I mean, that's the subject really, is um, our title anyways, two foolish questions. And I want to to, to just explain why they are foolish. Um, incidentally, if anybody thinks this subject matter is vaguely familiar, I did um, uh, write an article uh, um, based on this passage um, for the Evangelical Magazine some time ago. Um, normally, if I do a sermon, it turns out to be an article sometimes. Um, I think it's the only time I can think of where it's happened the other way around. It started as an article and now it's ending up before you as a, as a sermon, but I think it's such an important subject that it's, it's well worth uh, considering. Um, let me start with an illustration, which is rare enough for me anyway. Um, since childhood, one of my favorite uh, 20th century paintings um, has been Stanley Spencer's very celebrated painting called The Resurrection in Cookham Churchyard. Um, any of you have ever seen it, you might think pictures of it, but um, pictures don't do justice because this is a huge canvas. It's 18 feet wide uh, by nine feet high. And if you want to see the original, it's well worth seeing it. Uh, you have to go to the Tate Modern in London. 
But the subject of this um, painting is um, is, a, is a, an idyllic Berkshire village. It's uh, the village of Cookham. It exists. It's where the painter uh, grew up as a boy. And what you see in the in the painting from the churchyard is uh, numerous ordinary looking people um, depicted as happily emerging from their graves. And um, this is it's absolutely fascinating uh, to to watch this. It's uh, um, I, I remember being staggered by when I first saw a picture of this um, as a boy. And I remember posing to myself um, the two questions that we've just considered. Um, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body will they come? And Paul says these are foolish questions. Um, and, uh, but whether they're asked by uh, sneering skeptics or, or, or concerned believers, or just from mere curiosity, they're still top of the list when the topic of the resurrection of the dead is up for discussion. Now, just as the Lord Jesus Christ never asked, answered foolish questions, the Apostle Paul doesn't answer foolish questions either, but he does go to considerable lengths in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 to explain precisely why it is foolish to ask them. And that really is the point. And that's what we're going to try and do here um, this morning. Now, some members of the Corinthian church were still infected very clearly from the whole subject matter of this chapter. They were still infected with this um, very common Greek idea that matter was essentially evil. And therefore, if everything substantial, everything material is evil, death is consequently a good thing because it liberates the soul, the spiritual element of a human being from the body. That's what naturally follows. That's a serious problem. If you believe that matter is intrinsically evil, you believe that death is a good thing. And when somebody dies, the spirit is released from the body. But Paul had taught them the very and essentially biblical truth that God created human beings to be both body and soul together from the beginning. And he had declared that this, his crowning work in creating a human being in this way, was very good. And that death is an enemy. And that when death entered God's perfect world, as a result of Adam's sin, death served as the enemy of God and man by unraveling the perfect word of God, by tearing apart body and soul and doing the work, doing the devil's work. So it wasn't a good thing. Death is a bad thing. Death is an enemy. Death comes as a result of Adam's sin, as we read in this chapter. I'm not going to refer to every verse, but what I'm giving you here is the essential teaching of this, this chapter. And because of that, uh, we are left in this parlous situation at death of being separated, separating, tearing asunder what God has put together. If we can use sort of language on the marriage service, it's not totally inappropriate, but this is what the devil does through sin. And 1 Corinthians, of course, is the great chapter of the resurrection. And Paul here insists that Christ has overcome sin and death, all the consequences of sin, through his, Jesus, atoning death upon the cross. And that, as we saw last week from Romans 1, 
The Lord Jesus Christ has been appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And therefore, because Christ has been appointed, given this new status as a result of the resurrection, and he's been appointed in this way, everything will and now must be restored according to God's original plan. Everything has been undone and caused to descend into chaos as a result of sin. And death is the greatest thing of all. All of these things must be completely undone. And therefore, says Paul, um, the bodies and souls of the redeemed, of the saved, must and will be ultimately reunited on the day that Christ returns to usher in his new and perfect cosmos, his new and perfect creation. And he says that Christ's physical resurrection from the dead is the first fruits. That's what he says in this chapter. It's the first fruits of this general resurrection. Christ rising from the dead, reuniting body and spirit of God in himself, in his, in his true nature. As a result of that, that's the first fruit and is therefore a prophecy of everything that will happen to all of his people as well. In other words, says Paul, it's impossible to conceive of one without the other. Because the problem was, it seems, that um, from verses 1 to 11, most of the Corinthian believers were accepting the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. But they then were denying the physical bodily resurrection of believers. And Paul says this is a ridiculous thing. He says it brings into doubt whether you truly understand and believe in the resurrection of Christ, because you cannot separate the two. It's impossible to conceive of the physical resurrection of Jesus and not the physical bodily resurrection of believers. <clears throat> it's interesting, actually, because I think probably that same um, error may well be true within certain forms of evangelicalism today. I think there'll be some Christians who would say, I can believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus, but have grave doubts about their own bodily resurrection in the day to come when Christ returns. I think that might well be a possible problem of today as well. So anyway, let's come to our first question there in verse 35. How are the dead raised? And the question is here, um, not one of process, but it is a question of possibility. In other words, what the question is asking is this. It's saying, isn't it simply absurd to speak of the resurrection of bodies that have long since um, turned to dust, um, whose every constituent atom has subsequently passed through numerous other organisms, uh, it is surely naivety in the extreme. It is foolish to imagine uh, the possibility of a general resurrection of the dead, a la Cookham Churchyard. It surely is ridiculous to think like that. <coughs> and of course, many humanists and skeptics will say something very similar to that today. They'll say this is just a ridiculous naive belief. And um, sometimes Christians are stumped by this. They don't really know what to say. Uh, um, but uh, I, I suppose um, Paul's first response might be contained in the previous verse, in verse 34, uh, where he says, um, 
He says there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Um, and I suppose you could say, well, um, why should a God who creates out of nothing not be able to recreate out of something? And why can't he bring together all the atoms that were constituent parts of people's bodies and so on and so forth? Um, it's often occurred to me and, of course, many other people as well, that if you can believe the very first verse of the Bible in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And quite frankly, we shouldn't have any real problem believing anything that follows. And I think that's the case. If you truly believe the first verse of the Bible, you shouldn't have any problem with any miracle or anything else, should you? Um, but that's not I mean, Paul is more helpful than this. I mean, that everything there is perfectly true. And you could start by saying that. But think of what God has done for the believer. Think of Romans. We looked at Romans 1 last week um, and saw how all the great doctrines flow from his initial statement about the resurrection at the beginning of Romans 1. And if you think perhaps of the most famous chapter of Romans, Romans 8, um, and right at the end of the chapter, it talks about us as believers having been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and then finally glorified. This is the unstoppable march of God's grace in the unfolding lives of each one of his believing people. This is the process of God's salvation, if you can call it that that we are all the beneficiaries of if we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, foreknown in eternity past, known in the biblical sense of God loving us in the most intimate way. And from that love um, stemmed his uh, electing choice, his predestination. And then in time, we are called by God in an effectual way that we can't ultimately resist. And as we put our trust in Jesus, we are justified by that faith. And then that last thing, glorified. Why should we question the possibility of the last link in this miraculous chain? Especially when we've experienced the wonderful life-giving truths of all the links that preceded. No wonder Paul calls this question foolish. He might well have said worse than that. But Paul goes on to assume that most likely there is a, a basic misconception in the question. Many Christians imagine, as I've already said, um, that, that the New Testament um, posits a kind of Cookham churchyard resurrection with believers emerging, uh, clothed in their shrouds, um, looking much the same as they did on the day when they died, apart from perhaps a little color in their cheeks. And it just seems that many Christians believe this rather naive, romantic, sentimental picture of the resurrection from the dead. And the, the question, is, and of course, that always provokes even more foolish questions. Because people will say, well, if this is what the resurrection of the dead is like, um, how old will we look in our resurrection bodies? Now, there's a whole series of very foolish questions 
that are even more foolish than the ones that Paul condemns here. He says, well, you know, if, if a child dies in infancy, will the glorified body of that child be an infant? Or if somebody dies very old and frail and decrepit, when they're raised from the dead, will they look like they did in their prime? And so on and so forth. You heard people ask questions like this, and maybe you've asked them yourself. If you ask these questions yourself and you don't know the answers, then it's a good job you're listening to this sermon now. Now, if Paul does not leave us with these questions, he doesn't want us to be naive. He doesn't want us to be superficial. He doesn't want us to look stupid when unbelievers ask us questions like this, because these things are of great importance. Paul immediately, after these questions are asked, appeals at this point to his readers' very mundane and everyday experience. If you look at verses 37 and 38, he says, look, he says, when you sow, maybe it's a, a, a seed of wheat or something, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. He says, the ear of wheat that grows up from the seed, does it look anything like the seed you planted? He says, it doesn't look remotely like it. He says in these verses, in, in verse 37 and 38, God gives it a body as he has determined. The plant that emerges from the seed will look nothing like the seed. So what Paul is teaching here in very basic agricultural language that everyone would have been able to understand, he's saying, he's implying, don't think of the general resurrection of the body too simplistically. Please don't be embarrassed by the clear promise of the resurrection of the dead simply because you believe the Bible teaches your fairy tale version of it. Instead, let's look more closely at what the Bible teaches, and then you will have absolutely no reason to be embarrassed about this truth at all. I think Christians tend to put this in the back of their minds because they haven't thought through what the Bible teaches on issues like this and are somewhat embarrassed by the truth of the resurrection of the dead. Now, this leads naturally enough, we've already started to answer it, onto the second question there. There it is again, we're in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. And the second question is this, with what kind of body will they come? And this question may seem a little bit more innocent than the first, but Paul still calls it foolish, uh, probably because despite the attempts of many and the certainty of some, it cannot be fully answered. And he's telling us, and I've told you already that it cannot be fully answered. The fact is, what we do know is that our resurrection bodies will be very different from the ones that we now possess. And of course, he goes on. We, we could look in verses 42 to 53 in great detail, but he tells us all sorts of things. He says, look, he says, they will no longer be perishable. They will no longer be mortal. They will no longer be dishonorable. They will no longer be weak. They will no longer be natural. They will no longer be earthly. But instead, these new resurrection bodies, these glorified bodies, will be imperishable, 
They'll be immortal. They'll be glorious. They'll be powerful. They'll be spiritual bodies. Doesn't mean ethereal. It means spiritual bodies. They'll be heavenly bodies. This will be <clears throat> our glorification. And if you can imagine all of these changes, you will readily imagine that our resurrection bodies will be vastly different, perhaps even unrecognizably different from our own bodies now. And I think at this point, we need to be guided by the words of another apostle, by the words of the apostle John, when he wrote in his first letter, chapter three and verse two, he says this very important words in connection with our subject. He says this, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we be, will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So John is speaking here about um, what we will look like in the future. And at first sight, I think, um, if you think carefully about this, this verse, dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, but we shall see him as, as he is. Now, at first glance, this, the two parts of this statement may seem contradictory. John appears to be saying, <clears throat> Firstly, that we can't know what our resurrection bodies will be like, because that information has not yet been revealed. But then on the other hand, he says we shall be like Christ, and surely we do not know what his resurrection body was like, right? Well, let's be very careful about that second assumption, that we do know what Christ's body will look like. It's certainly true, isn't it, that our glorified bodies will be like Christ's. Our glorified bodies will be like the glorified body of Christ. Paul says elsewhere, he says it in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. He says he will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Philippians 3 verse 20. But the point is this. What exactly a glorified body is like has not yet been made known, to again quote John. And the confusion arises, it seems to me, because it is often assumed that how Jesus appeared to the disciples during the 40 days following his resurrection is substantially how he now appears since his ascension into glory. This is where the evangelical myths appear, which are impossible to justify from scripture. Does the biblical evidence point in this direction, that Christ's glorified body will be very similar to the resurrection body that appeared to the 11 in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension? It seems to me the clues that we have point in a very different direction. Um, do you remember Mary? meeting the resurrected Christ outside the empty tomb. She wants to hold on to him. And uh, he says to her, this is John 20, isn't it? Verse 17, 
Uh, he says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And there's huge debate in the commentators about exactly what that means and why Jesus says this. But um, if what I'm saying to you is the case, then it doesn't make, uh, doesn't cause much confusion. He knew that the process of his glorious exaltation was far from complete. He was in process of glorification. Remember that the first prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, when he gives this great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, what's his first prayer? Um, it's this. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The resurrection, as I think I said last week, is sort of like the first stage of the rocket of the uh, glorification of Christ. And obviously part of this glorification has begun in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's fully glorified when he's in the presence of the Father. That's what we're taught here. The full process, the full prayer that Jesus prays in the upper room in John 17 has yet to be fully answered. And then you might want to consider also the fact that um, to be a true apostle, they had to be a witness of Christ's resurrection. Um, Paul himself, um, as we saw last week, qualified because, as he tells us, last of all, the Lord, the risen Christ, appeared to me as to one abnormally born. That's verse 8, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 15. And yet, and this is very important, isn't it? The, the post-ascension appearance of the risen Christ to Paul was very different from the pre-ascension appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 11. Well, I said last week, but I think it fits in with what I'm saying now. Only when we have glorified eyes of our own, only when our bodies are like the glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ, will we be able to recognize the glorified Christ without being blinded as Paul was on the road to Damascus. Here's Paul in his earthly, perishable, mortal body, seeing the glorified Christ. And of course, it's way beyond any ability of his. He knows it is Jesus. Jesus tells him it is himself, but he knows and sees nothing beyond the light which literally blinds him. And you see the difference here between the appearance of Jesus to the 11 and the appearance of Jesus to the apostle Paul who was abnormally born. The 11 needed to be convinced that this was indeed the same Jesus that they had known and loved and followed for the past three years, the same Jesus who had died upon the cross and been buried, who had now been raised bodily from the dead. They needed to recognize him. They needed to see him eating. They needed to be astonished at his wounds and if necessary to be even to put their hands in his wounds. But Paul needed none of these things. Indeed, it is most likely that Paul never saw Jesus before the crucifixion. And so if he'd seen him subsequently, 
he wouldn't have been able to recognize him anyway. And he's born abnormally out of due time. And uh, obviously not necessary to see the Lord Jesus Christ as he was in his life. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, says John. And yet we have this strange conception that somehow or other the body of the Lord Jesus Christ will be very similar to the way in which the 11 saw Jesus after the resurrection, before the ascension, before he was fully glorified. And I think one of the reasons for this is, even though <coughs> there is a total absence of biblical justification for this, and indeed everything we read in the Bible points in another direction, um, unfortunately it's been reinforced by all sorts of, um, of, of hymns. Um, one of my favorite hymns, is um, crown him with many crowns. Um, it's a great hymn in many ways, but it's a, it's a typical Victorian hymn in that it contains uh, several very speculative elements. Um, Around his pierced feet, fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet. Very Victorian um, sentiments that, you know, obviously had nothing to do with the Bible, whatsoever but one of the um one of the lines in crown him with many crowns um goes um talks about those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified and uh, you know somehow i seriously doubt that any of the most dreadful consequences of sin such as the wounds of christ will be allowed to persist in the new creation. The whole point about death and decay and evil and violence is that they will be swept away in the new kingdom. People say, oh, well, it'd be wonderful to be able to see the wounds of Jesus in the New Testament, in the new creation, glorified or otherwise. Really? Why? Well, they'll act as a reminder. And goodness me, I cannot imagine that in eternity any believer is going to need a reminder of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them. And there is no evidence for this whatsoever. Sometimes people point to, um, I don't know, Revelation chapter five. I think it's the only possible um, uh, verses that people might be thinking of, where John in his great apocalyptic vision uh, sees a lamb um, as it had been slain. But, um, you know, I mean, nobody for one moment thinks, for example, in the great vision of Jesus in chapter one, that Jesus is going to look like he appears in chapter one, although I think probably... That's a more appropriate picture of how Christ will appear in his glory. But in, in Revelation chapter five, the appearance of a lamb who had been slain. This is nothing in Revelation is as it will appear. It, these, this is, these are symbolic um, visions here. These are not realities. This is not what heaven will seem like to us. These are um, glorious symbolic references that we are to learn from. And, and if you, anyway, if you saw a lamb who was slain, you'd see a lamb with its throat cut. You wouldn't see a lamb with four holes through each hoof. I mean, the idea that this in any way could possibly represent um, the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ um, seems to me um, patently absurd. And it's, it's not a, a right way, not a correct way to look at the symbolic references in the book of Revelation. And then of course, if you 
look at that correctly, you won't find any other reference to this at all. When we are in glory, we will have glorified bodies which are like the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will see him with our glorified eyes, and both he and we will be very different in eternity to the way in which we appear today. It seems to me that's what Paul is saying. Um, as the apostles were told at the ascension, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. But the appearance of this same Jesus on that dramatic day when every eye will see him will surely be vastly different to the appearance with which he disappeared and was hidden by the clouds. Hardly possible to imagine his glorious return if that were not the case. And so let me draw to a close. Um, I'm sorry if I'm dispelling any views that you, you have, but quite frankly, I, I want to do that if you, if, if you can have a, a more um, biblical view of what um, this is all about. Despite all of this, it is staggeringly true that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, or we shall see him as he is. And we may have been considering um, foolish questions, but I think reflecting on, on them just a little should surely cause us to be lost in wonder, love, and praise, and also make us want to share this glorious truth, make us want to think about it, make us want to ponder on it, make us want to share it with others, make us unafraid and unembarrassed when people say, you know, what do you Christians believe about this? You believe that, don't you? And we can set them straight and say, no, we believe this. This is what the Bible teaches. There are many things that we don't know, but what we do know is thoroughly glorious and absolutely certain, and the resurrection of Christ and his glorification is the evidence that we have that we shall be like him.